We're reading from um, 1 Timothy, chapter 4. You can find it on page 1192 in the Church Bible. Starting to read from verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as they were the hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth and not received with thanksgiving by the word of God. These things nourished on the truth have followed an old wives but God holding promise acceptance because he had put saviour of all people and especially of those who believe command and teach these things don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the believers in speech in conduct in love in faith and in purity until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching do not Neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ray, thank you very much. Second Timothy 3.16 As all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's great, great purposes in the scripture. Jeremy is going to come and share with us now as he opens the scripture to us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gary. Do please keep those Bibles open at that um, passage in 1 Timothy, chapter 4, um, 11.92, if you've already closed the Bibles. Um, actually, Ed, can I add another notice? Um, this is an advert for something at St. Mary's, which is, uh, hopefully it's allowed, you know. <laughs> so uh, in two Sundays' time, uh, we've got a service of thanksgiving and remembrance, um, uh, which Ed forgot about. It's four o'clock. Next Sunday, uh, Sunday the 11th, and it's a service which is really an opportunity uh, to give comfort to those who've lost um, dear ones over the last 12, 18 months. So four o'clock, Sunday the 11th at St. Mary's, lovely little service that we've re-established after the pandemic. Um, so if you know of anyone who's lost a loved one or you yourself have lost a loved one, then I do commend that service to you. Was that all right, Ed? It's in the first email as well, Joe. Right. Great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be back here among old friends uh, at Emmanuel. Um, some very old friends, clearly, I can see that. Um, but I have to admit that I did rather struggle with this passage in pre preparing for this evening, for a reason that I will make clear. And, and you must know that we clergy do agonize over our sermons, because it's so important to be faithful 
to the word of God and to preach clearly. I'm reminded of the vicar, you may have heard this story before, who was a nervous preacher, and one Sunday morning he delivered the longest and most boring sermon you could imagine. Um, it wasn't anybody here, just in case you're wondering. Um, and the congregation filed out of church afterwards, saying nothing to him. But there was one woman at the end of the line who always commented on the vicar's sermons. Vicar, she said, today your sermon reminded me of the peace and love of God. And the vicar was thrilled. He said, no one's ever said anything like that about my preaching before. Tell me why. Well, she said, your sermon reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding. <laughs> And it reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. <laughs> well, I hope that my talk this evening will remind you of the peace and the love of God in a good way. So before we dive into the passage, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us through it this evening, speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, that uh, if it's your will, you might truly change us through it. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why did I struggle with this passage? Well, the, the main reason is that, as I'm sure you've gathered by now, um, most, unlike most of Paul's letters in the Bible, um, 1 and 2 Timothy are addressed not to a whole church like the Romans or the Corinthians or the Ephesians, but to a single individual. In this case, to Timothy. Um, a fairly young or youngish uh, probably in his 40s, but youngish, a youngish protege of Paul who had been left in charge of the church in Ephesus to oversee it as, it as it developed from having been established by Paul. So much of this letter is specific to someone in church leadership. And we see that back in chapter 1, where Paul charges Timothy directly to challenge false teaching in the church. And then we get to chapter 4, where we are this evening, and Paul gets even more personal with Timothy, explaining that uh, uh, what, Paul needs, what Timothy needs to do to be a good minister of Christ. You see that in verse 6. And then in verse 12, Paul writes, don't let, uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And then again, verse 14, don't neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, when, when Timothy was ordained. So this is a very personal letter of encouragement and exhortation to a person in church leadership. So the question I struggled with is this. At first glance, this letter is great for, for me, for Ed, um, for um, uh, John, those of us in, in ordained ministry, because we have special and heavy responsibilities. Tim, I see Tim there over there. Um, we've got special and heavy responsibilities for shepherding and protecting the flock. So how is this passage relevant to the whole church, to the whole of God's people? How is it relevant to all of us here this evening? Well, fortunately, 2 Timothy provides the answer, and Gary has already read it. Those great verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I'm sure you know them. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are all of us, as followers of Jesus, servants of God. 
So Paul's letters to Timothy are as relevant to the whole people of God as they are relevant to those who are called to leadership. So the preacher's challenge, and my challenge this evening, is to find out how these are relevant to all of us. And a great place to start when it comes to these letters, the so-called pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are these so-called trustworthy sayings. I think you've already gone through a couple. Um, And uh, Now, what are these trustworthy sayings? Well, we need to remember that when these letters were written, the only scriptures that were available were the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament canon... Um, the, the great Christian creeds, these didn't emerge until um, much, much later, in some case centuries later. So in these early days, the church developed short creed-like statements to help people remember the great truths of the gospel. Mini-creeds, if you like. Your cut-out and keep guide to the great truths of the gospel. And you may remember the two trustworthy sayings mentioned earlier in 1 Timothy. If you just look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, I'm sure you remember it. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that a great mini-creed to commit to memory? A wonderful statement of gospel truths. And then look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And then further on in the Bible, there's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, which begins, if we died with him, we also live with him. And there's another trustworthy saying in Titus about our being saved for good works, but not saved by good works. Saved for good works, not saved by good good works. So that's four great trustworthy sayings, pithy summaries of the gospel. And then we have the fifth trustworthy saying here in our passage this evening in chapter four. Did you notice it? Just look at verse nine. This is actually simply saying, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now the only problem is that Bible scholars, when they look at this passage, can't quite work out which is the trustworthy saying. (laughs) Is it the verses before, or is it the verse afterwards? Um, And the original Greek doesn't help us. Um, It could be the previous uh, verses, verses 7 and 8, about training for godliness. It could be verse 10. That's why we labor and strive. We don't quite know. Actually, normally when Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, it's the statement that follows that is the trustworthy saying. But here, I think that actually it's the preceding verses which are the trustworthy saying. Particularly verse 8. And I think this is the verse that is speaking to all of us, all of God's people this evening. Just look at it, verse 8. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. The message translation puts it um, rather, rather succinctly and rather well, in my view. Workouts in the gym are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so. 
making you fit both for today and forever. In short, training in the gym is good. Of course it is. Uh, and for those of you who are gym bunnies, I don't know whether there are any here, but if you are a gym bunny, great. But training for godliness is better. Better to be a godliness bunny than a gym bunny. <laughs> so the questions this evening for us are these. Why is it better to train for godliness? And how do we train for godliness? Why and how? And the great thing is, this is the wonder of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 4 actually gives us the answer to both those questions. Why and how? Which is why, now I think I've got my head around it, this is a great passage for the whole of God's church, God's people today, and for Emmanuel. First, why? And that's made clear in the first five verses of chapter 4. Just look at verses 1 to 2. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such te teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And Paul then goes on to describe the particular false teaching in Ephesus at that time, which was a kind of fake legalism, um, uh, what's called a agnostic dualism, that actually said that you, you couldn't get married and you couldn't eat certain types of food. One of the things about false teaching is that it can be at two extremes. It can either be too legalistic, as it was in this case, or it can be too liberal and too permissive. Here it was excessive legalism. Now it's important to remember that here in Chesham, in May 2023, we are in the later times. When this or, or equivalent phrase appears in the New Testament, it invariably refers to the time between Christ's resurrection and ascension and when he comes back again, when he returns in glory. Just think of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. In these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is saying, clearly, do you notice that verse, that word in, in verse 1 of chapter 4? The Holy Spirit is saying, clearly, through Paul, that in these last days, in other words, right now, there will be false teachers as sure as eggs is eggs. There will be false teachers. They will come with the appearance of being Christian teachers, yet they will abandon the faith, verse 1. Ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing is how Jesus puts it in Matthew's Gospel. People pretending to be part of the flock, but who will try to devour you with their devilish lies and their devilish doctrines. You see, even Satan has his doctrines. These are people with seared consciences. Did you see that in verse 2? The Greek word used is the equivalent of our word cauterized. These people have been seared, cauterized, in the sense that they and their consciences have been completely desensitized to the damage that they are doing to themselves and to God's people. Now, I did promise Ed that I would not speak to the issue of same-sex marriage this evening, more or less, same-sex blessings. Did I? Maybe not. But anyway, 
And I'm just a humble curate at St. Mary's, so this is way above my pay grade. And I know that Ed's been doing great teaching on this issue here at Emmanuel. But do you see the relevance of this passage to what's happening in the church today? I'm a member of General Synod, and when we debated these issues back in February, it was clear that there was really two parallel Gospels um, in evidence there. One was the Gospel revealed here in God's Word, in Scripture, also revealed in the apostolic teaching as it's been revealed down the centuries. A Gospel of grace, but also a, great, a Gospel of repentance and obedience. The other gospel, sadly a gospel promoted by some of our bishops, was a gospel of the age. A gospel which had conformed to the pattern of this world. Something which Paul, in one of his other letters, in Romans chapter 12, expressly tells us not to do. A gospel which has abandoned the historic faith as it's been handed down over the centuries. And that is why we need to train for godliness. There's a lot of despair at the moment in the church about what's happening to it and how we can resist this uh, move to fit in with the, with the morals of the age. There is an answer, and that is that we train for godliness because we are training for a battle, a battle against falsehood and the devil's lies, a battle to guard the truth. Paul puts it bluntly, in verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. I think that's a bit half, harsh on old wives, so perhaps we can uh, go back to the message translation, which puts it uh, rather well and also manages to avoid, avoid offending old wives. It says this, stay clear of silly stories that get dressed up as religion. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. <laughs> no spiritual flabbiness, please. The mess that the church is in today is a result, frankly, of spiritual flabbiness. Church leaders abandoning the faith. Shepherds abandoning their flocks. Shepherds who should be protecting their flocks. Nourishing them with the word of God. Leading them in the right direction, not the wrong direction. The only antidote to this, the only way we as a church can be the pillar and foundation of the truth, that's a phrase from 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, you've already looked at it, the only way we can do that is for God's people, for us to train ourselves up for godliness, for us to become spiritually fit and not spiritually flabby. So that's the why. But how? How do we do this? How do we train for godliness? Well, as I say, again, 1 Timothy chapter 4 gives us the answer. Now, as I say, the letter is directed primarily at Timothy. But these are trustworthy sayings for all of us. And I think that this passage reveals five particular ways of training up for godliness, which rather helpfully can be summarized or memorized with the word Train. T-R-A-I-N. I'm glad Ed's got a pen to write these down. Brilliant. But uh, um, train. A nice preaching mnemonic, which I can just about say. So here goes. Briefly 
as I come to a close shortly. T is for toil. Because training is always hard work, isn't it? As someone once put it, godliness won't just happen to us, we need to work at it. The writer to the Hebrews puts it well, chapter 12 and verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's why Paul refers in verse 10 of our passage to our laboring and striving. Do you see that? Training for godliness is not going to be easy. <clears throat> it will involve sweat and toil. As if we were training for a marathon or the three, three peaks challenge. So a question for you this evening. What part of training for godliness do you find particularly hard? What's a particular struggle for you? I'll tell you what it is for me. And it's being disciplined in my quiet times. My day is so full, I struggle to make it a priority. I have to tell you that recently... I started seeing a new spiritual director, or an accompanier, as she prefers to be called. She's a lovely nun uh, at the convent in Gerard's Cross. And uh, I shared with her my struggles in trying to find, be disciplined in my quiet times. And so she, she gave me some advice and challenged me just to even go out of the house, sit in the park for 15 minutes every day. I was due to see her last Monday, and I put her off because I was too embarrassed to admit that I still wasn't managing it. Seeing her next month, pray for me that I can be disciplined in my quiet times. That's the point. It's never going to be easy. We have to labor and strive. Paul says it here. So a question for coffee. How, where do we find it most difficult to train for godliness? How can other people help us train? T is for toil. R. R is for read. And I don't mean read the latest trashy thriller or self-help book. I mean read God's word. Be soaked in God's word. Just look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now the word public doesn't actually appear in the original Greek. But the only way that many people would have heard God's word at this time when this was written was through the public reading of scripture, which in this context was, as we've heard, mainly the, uh, the reading of the Hebrew scriptures. But that was, that was then. Today, we are blessed with God's word. In the Christian Bible, the beauty and power of the Old Testament and the apostolic teaching in the New Testament, it's a wonderful gift to us. From God, but are we actually immersing ourselves in it? If we don't constantly take the opportunity to read God's word, how can we ever train ourselves for godliness? R is for read. A. A is for adhere. Adhere to the apostolic teaching that has been handed down to us over the centuries. Just look at verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Now, the truths of the faith are the truths revealed in God's word. Above all, the truth revealed in that first um, trustworthy saying that we, we looked at in chapter one, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
But what is the good teaching that you have followed? That is the apostolic witness revealed in the New Testament and handed down to us over the last 2,000 years. Just coming back to General Synod when we met in February, I tell you what the most depressing thing was. It wasn't the way that the revisionists mangled the word of God, mangled scripture as they tried to defend their position. In fact, they didn't really refer to God's word. And that's because there is no warrant in God's word for what they are proposing. No, what really was most depressing was the fact that they were prepared to jettison 2,000 years of apostolic teaching on marriage and sex. Teaching which has been fully accepted by our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, and Christians around the world. I initially thought that A should be accept the apostolic teaching, but that's too weak. We need to adhere to it. We need to stick to it like glue, because if we abandon it, as some are proposing, then we will surely lose our way. A is for adhere. T-R-A-I is for imitate. A key message in this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4, is that Timothy is to be especially diligent in training for godliness so that others might follow his example. That's a special responsibility for all church leaders. Verse 12 again. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And then verse 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So if it's good to set an example, it's good to imitate, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying this evening that you should imitate me or Ed or Gary or Tim or John or anybody else in a position of leadership. We are sinners like everybody else. We are flawed like everybody else. Me especially so, given my struggle with being disciplined in quiet times. But all of us, I'm sure, can think of at least one person, and I'm sure maybe more, who we know are godly people. People who indeed set a good example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Verse 12. So second takeaway this evening, second discussion point over coffee. Which godly person do you want to focus on and imitate them? As you go on your own walk with Jesus, I is for imitate. Finally, N. N is for nurture. We need to nurture our faith. We need to nurture our godliness. We need to nurture our spiritual gifts, our spiritual lives, so that we do indeed become spiritually fit and not spiritually flabby. Just look at verse 16, the last verse of the chapter. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We need to nurture our spiritual gifts, the gifts which God has given us for the blessing of God's people. Question, do you even know which spiritual gifts God has given you that he is calling you to nurture? Just look at verse 14, where Paul says to Tim, don't neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. We need to nurture the godly characteristics mentioned in verse 12. Our speech, our conduct, our love, our faith, our purity. So we nurture 
our faith. We nurture our gifts. We nurture our spiritual lives. We nurture our character. N is for nurture. So there you have it. Train. Folks, we're in a battle. A battle where we are fighting for gospel truth in the face of the devil's lies. We need to be, in the words of this sermon series, guardians of the good news. We need to train for the battle. And we do that how? By training for godliness. Training in the gym is good, but training for godliness is better because it brings an eternal reward. We need to train T for toil because it will always be difficult and hard. R for reading the word of God. A for adhering to the apostolic teaching. I for imitating those whom we know who are godly. N for nurturing our faith, our gifts, our spiritual lives, our very character. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Not for our glory, but for his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit. We thank you especially today on the day of Pentecost for your spirit. Lord, as we seek to grow in godliness, we cannot do it in our own strength. So we pray for more of your spirit that we can indeed train in godliness to counter falsehood in the world. Help us even when it's hard. Help us to be faithful in reading your word. Help us to stick to the apostolic teaching. Show us whom we are to imitate and help us by your spirit to nurture our faith as we seek to grow in you. Lord, we do it for your glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.